Hello, everybody. It's Liam. And Danica from Murder Mimosas. We wanted to drop it in to remind you that part two of the Robert William Picton episode dropped on Murder and Mimosas feeds. We are rewinding the clock to tell you everything about Robert Picton, his life, his crimes, and his conviction. So if you haven't listened yet, go listen to that. But if you have, here is your regularly scheduled episode of Crime Over Wine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 33rd episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week, my guest co-host is, I have to say, like, one of my podcast's most loyal listeners, and I'm so excited to have her on this week. My guest co-host this week is Heather Holly. Hello, Heather. So good to see you. Hi, Liam. So Heather and I first met at a news station in Chattanooga, and she still works there, actually. And for those of you who are newer to the podcast, you may not know that I have a background in local news, specifically in crime reporting. And so, you know, every time that a crime story popped up, Heather was also right there working with me behind the scenes to help report on these, you know, incredibly important cases here locally in Chattanooga. Yeah, it's been an interesting almost two years uh, together because there have been some crazy stories in Chattanooga lately. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, we just covered um, uh, two weeks ago, we covered the Catherine Goins case that was in Ringgold, um, which is right down the street from Chattanooga. And so the weirdest shit happens here. (laughs) And like, I really don't feel like not a whole lot of people know about it as much as they should. But there's probably a little bit of a different podcast. Maybe we should start a podcast just on Chattanooga crimes. Maybe. Just a worm. Just a worm. Yeah, maybe. So, you know, but but before we even get there, though, Heather, we do have wine to drink. um, And so I demand that we, you know, move right into that part of the podcast because I know that's what everyone really listens for. So this week we are drinking the Velvet Devil's Merlot. It is from Washington State, a bold, sultry red. Charles Smith's efforts to make Merlot sexy again. Love that for him. It offers notes of deep and delicious black fruit, cedar tobacco, and cassis. I don't know what cassis is, but it's in the wine, so we're about to taste it. Okay, maybe it'll be that one thing that sticks out and we're like, what's that? Oh, cassis. Yeah. Oh, it's cassis. Now I know what it is. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I am desperate <laughs> to know what, what cassis is really all about. Um, so, and also, too, like, I feel like Merlot is probably the sexiest of the reds. I didn't know that it... I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. Yeah, I didn't know it would need that um, PR assistance to make it sexy again. Yeah. <laughs> right, Charles. <laughs> Smith, yeah, Charles Smith is, is is trying to make Merlot sexy again, and, and, and in my book, it's always been the sexiest. It's always been the sexiest. I, whenever I think of Merlot, I think of just, like, real classy flavors, and, like, real, like, you know, real big glass, and, like, you know what, like, you know those, like, really big, like, wide, um, tall wine glasses, um, and you just, like, no, like, you, like, there's just, like, not enough in that glass to be, like, there's so much more that you could fill in the wine. I don't understand why it's that small. That's what I think of when I think of sex reds that's and i always feel like it's a merlot in there probably yeah like probably i don't know what happened to merlot and this guy but uh, i think he's the (laughs) only one that feels that way right right right. well cheers to you heather thank you so much for coming on Okay, there's a flavor in the back of my mouth that I don't know what it is, and I'm going to go ahead and say that's that's cassis i don't know what it's supposed to taste like but i'm going to go ahead and say that's that yeah it's 
it's kind of woody. I don't like, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's like, it's not oak, but it's wood. Yeah, well, it is. So it is cedar tobacco. That's the other part of this of this flavor combination that we're talking about here. So but I don't really get cedar. Mm -mm. Like, not really. I get like a woody kind of taste. If anyone knows what Cassis is, can you write it, write us in and tell us what it's supposed to taste like? Because I, I feel like I'm never going to be able to figure this out fully. Um, but I will say it's, that's a pretty sexy glass. I will, I, I think I'm, I definitely am in digging that for sure. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm normally more of a, um, dry or sweet person, but like I'm mm. digging this. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's very bold. Lots of fruit flavors for sure. Like it's, it's like really like fills the mouth. Absolutely. Um, cedar tobacco is interesting. I don't really know like where we're going with that for sure. And I don't really get that here either. Um, but definitely black fruit for sure. Um, bold, sultry red, a hundred percent. Like the, the, the descriptions here are pretty good. Yeah, it's like making Merlot sexy for heterosexual men again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, you know what? Do you boo? Honestly, though, because like, like if you like, so the 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 label on this right is giving LGBT one hundred percent. Like this is what I feel like. Like this is like very like this like this is how I think of like like Brooklyn gays. This is how I feel. This is the kind of like wine that I feel like this is that this is what they would be going for. So that's how I'm feeling right now. That's like that a good good analysis. Yeah, there you go. Love that for us. Love that for us. Well let's move on to Heather probably the craziest case that I've talked about in this podcast. It is mind blowing, head scratching Everything all in one. I cannot sub- stop thinking about this case. And I have a feeling you're not going to be able to stop thinking about this case either. And I also know, so Heather's like a true crime girly, right? Um, I know that she has not heard of this case before. So I'm really excited to, for it to, you know, for you to just like absorb everything like as is and see and like based on what I found out and what I'm about to tell you. I'm really excited too. Um, I've avoided reading anything just so, so you can educate me yeah. all all on this case. Take it in raw. Take it in raw. So this week, Heather, I want to tell you about a case that absolutely blows my mind. The first time I heard about this, I simply could not believe that several families on Long Island had been living with a dead body in their basement and had absolutely no idea. This week, Heather, I want to tell you the story of Raina Marikin and the body in the barrel. September 2nd, 1999 was a moving day for the Cohen family in Jericho, New York on Long Island's North Shore, 30 miles east of Manhattan. Ronald Cohen and the rest of his family had sold their home for $455,000 and were getting ready to move on to the next chapter in their lives. But before they could do that, the new homeowner had noticed a 55-gallon steel drum in a crawl space below the home and demanded that Ronald have it removed 
removed before they move in. So it was moved to the curb on their moving day. But in the midst of all this madness, Ronald looked over to see the drum had a note on it. It was from the sanitation workers who said they were not going to be able to remove it themselves because it was simply too heavy, and said that based on what they could see for themselves, there could be toxic waste inside. So because of all this, the family would need to schedule a special cleanup. Now, Ronald had noticed the steel drum in the crawl space before in the nine years he had lived in the home, but he never thought twice about it, and it never even occurred to him to take a peek inside to see what was in it. So he decides to take a crowbar and pry it open, which did prove to be a bit of a challenge, but when he's finally able to get the barrel open, he is overcome with a foul smell. It was absolutely putrid. And when he takes a look inside the drum, he sees pellets suspended in a brownish-yellow slime, and right on top he notices a lady's shoe and a woman's hand. Uh, I, how do you, I'm sorry, first off, how do you live in a home for, what, nine years? And th- there's this just mm-hmm. mysterious barrel that you're like, eh, but that that's totally more right. normal. I'm not going to look into that or have it removed. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. Like, that's where my brain goes to. Like, listen, I am, like, far too much of an anxious person to, like, let this fly. Like, I don't, I don't understand. I'm right there with you 110%. Um, But I don't know. I guess I could also see, like, a world where it's just kind of, like, eh, you know? And it's also, too, I have to, like, put a little bit of context here because, like, I'm from New York, right? And, like, this all happened on Long Island. I feel like there is, like, a, like, this is, like, a very Long Island thing. (laughs) to happen right like i just feel like this is like it's very much so eh, like whatever like we've seen worse we've dip, we've been there done that like i don't really care what's in the in the barrel bigger things to worry about i can see that happening on long island for sure um but i but also do like i feel like from a homeowner's perspective of like like i can't get this out like i don't know how i would get this out so let's just like pretend that it's not there and hope that nothing bad happens yeah it okay i'm not, i'm not familiar with these barrels and how well they seal but I would think uh, rotting human flesh would have seeped, like that odor would have seeped out at some point and been noticeable. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but like the, like it was like sealed, like it was, so it was a steel drum, right? So like, I would imagine some level of like, um, of like welding kind of, I guess that like keeps that top on would be necessary, I suppose. But also, and again, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but like the, it was like vacuum sealed to the point of like most of the decomposition, like it, it did, like the air didn't really get to the body parts to degrade it and stuff um so evidently that wasn't the case i guess oh oh so we have like like pretty like decent remains left then like for investigators to look at Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. And, you know, Ronald is obviously, like, absolutely shook up by the discovery of what had likely been living in the basement of his home, presumably for at least close to a decade. And so he immediately calls police, who come and transport the drum to the Nassau County morgue, who come and transport the drum to the Nassau County morgue, who removes everything they can find inside of it for a forensic examination. And they find that there's not just a woman's hand in this sludge, no. There is an entire woman's body. The medical examiner estimates that the mummified remains belong to a woman between her, the ages of 25 to 30 years old, likely white or Hispanic and possibly about five feet tall, but decomposition had shrunk her body by nearly a foot. 
Also on the barrel, they find plastic pellets, green plastic flower stems with leaves, a woman's pocketbook, and three pieces of jewelry, two rings, and a locket engraved with Patrice Love Uncle Phil, and they were all submerged in an even thicker brownish-green liquid that's at the bottom of the drum. Now, the liquid had virtually destroyed everything that was inside of that pocketbook, but what was still mostly intact was some papers and an address book. Oh, okay. I've I've got a few questions swirling here. Okay. Um, Okay. uh, A pocketbook a woman normally carries, you know, her important stuff, which would include her ID. So, um, mm-hmm. any chance that 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 was recovered? Um, so we are going to get there, get to why she may not have had much of an identification um, in just a little bit. So definitely hold that thought, but I like where you're going with that. Um, but so, so, and so most of the papers that were just like, you know, again, in this pocketbook, in this address book, they were gone. And like anything on the paper was pretty much, you know, they couldn't really tell what kind of papers we're talking about here. Um, but they could, I guess, based on like the bounding outside of it, could tell that this, that the book was an address book. Okay, well, that's that's a hard hit for investigators. And then, so so the mm-hmm. sludge, I guess I had just thought that that was human ooze. Is that is that not what they think mm-hmm. it is? Is this some other substance? I don't think so, um, because so and they and again, we're going to get to this a little bit later on. Um, but the um, but the based on you know the the investigation, they eventually find out what it is actually. Um, but. My guess here, and I don't really know for sure, because, like, spoiler alert, it's not, like, human, like, gush. It's not that. Um, so my guess here is that they were able to figure out that it wasn't human gush, um, because it probably didn't smell very much. It probably didn't, like, it didn't have, like, typical human stuff, I guess. And so I, I, I think based on kind of what I read about this, I think they were able to tell pretty early on that they're dealing with something completely different. Okay. And and I'm pretty sure we're gonna have to get to this later, but plastic pellets and plastic flower stems, mm-hmm. like what in the world? That that does not belong yeah. with a human. <laughs> right. And yep. Yeah, and so so definitely hold that thought because okay. um, we are definitely coming back to that one okay. for sure. We are addressing the, the the plastic flowers. Okay, but back to the papers, they they couldn't tell what was written on anything, any of the names or contacts? No, the papers were almost entirely illegible. They were heavily damaged by a thick brownish yellow slime, but they could tell that there was a permanent resident card tucked into the first page of the address book, leading investigators to believe that the woman may have been an immigrant. And they believe the woman may have been from South America based on some of her unusual dental work, which they knew was more common in that part of the world. Oh, okay. That's really interesting about dental work being different in other parts of the world. I really wouldn't mm-hmm. have thought of that. So that's uh, interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, my understanding is that, like, she had, like, these, like, gold, like, coverings on her teeth. Um, and so, yeah, so that that's kind of, yeah. And I guess, again, I guess they were just like, yep, like, that sounds right. And I'm assuming, that, I'm assuming that, like, the average cop didn't know that, right? But, like, probably they consulted some sort of expert on dental work and said, like, hey, do you know what this is? Like, this is this stands, stood out to us. So okay, well, 
it still sounds like there is a lot of evidence here. There's pretty much a whole body that's mummified. So were they able to tell how she died? Well, the medical examiner determines that our Jane Doe's cause of death was blunt force trauma. She had 10 different lacerations to the top and back of her head, multiple fractures, and some areas of her skull had broken into several smaller pieces. She also had blood staining to the areas of the injuries, which indicated that the injuries were inflicted while she was still alive. And also, pause here too, because um, kind of what you're talking about before, Heather, like about the um, the steel drum, right? Where we're talking about how like like most of these like pieces, like injuries, whatever, like they were still pretty well preserved. Um, and so we're like, you know, I think they can probably tell that it's probably been in there for a long time, but the, you know, the air hadn't really got gotten to her all that much. And so most of these injuries are still pretty, you know, preserved enough that you can still do a whole lot of testing on that and so good news there i guess because i I don't don't think that you know if someone was in a barrel for all that for much longer absent the the you know preservations i don't think you'd be able to tell about the blood staining and that kind of thing so that's you know a good helpful clue to police i suppose but you know that wasn't all either though upon closer examination the medical examiner determined that she wasn't alone in that drum for all of this time they found that she had been carrying a 17 inch fetus a baby that was close to full term oh my gosh that's um as a like mom myself, that that's kind of a, a gut punch that this poor woman uh-huh. is not only murdered, but uh, she was carrying a child and was all like ready to welcome this child into the world. So right. two lives were lost. It's like like no one knew she was pregnant or anything. Yeah, well, but, yeah, exactly. So it's not like she was, like, in her first trimester, like, not showing and, like, you know, like, not that it would make it any better either way. Um, But, like, you know, like, it, it it's, it, you know, to me, that says that that could potentially have something to do with her death, right? If, yeah. if she was clearly pregnant, p- about to give birth. Like, maybe, you know, the father was involved. Maybe, you know, somebody who didn't want her to to have a baby in this world was involved. Like, that's where my brain goes immediately. Again, whereas if she was not showing, maybe this was, you know, you know, unintentionally you killed a pregnant woman as opposed to very targetedly killed a pregnant woman. Yeah, my mind immediately jumped to, oh, a man had an affair, like, uh, like, rich man Mm -hmm. had an affair, um, with an immigrant woman and decided to right. cover it up by killing her and the baby. That's, but that's right. just a theory. Maybe it's the wine talking. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, well, you have all the time to, to drunkenly tell me all your theories much <laughs> later on. So, yeah. Um, you know, throughout the forensic investigation into the woman's death, they are unable to determine her identity. But in order to determine that identity, investigators strongly believe that they need to find out what is on the papers and in the address book inside of the drum. And the scientific methods that they use to do that are absolutely fascinating.
According to the episode of Forensic Files on this case, the papers, including the address book, were placed inside of a forensic drying cabinet for several days to dry out the moisture, enough for tests and analyses to be run on them. When they dried, they could be examined with what Forensic Files called a video spectral comparator, which used infrared light to bring out writing that may not be visible to the naked eye. The liquid in the drum had removed the ink from the pages over the years that had been sitting in that goo. But the test did reveal impressions and writing under correction fluid, and examiners could also tell where the writer had used different kinds of ink and places where things were written at different points in time, too. But what can only be explained as a you know possible scientific miracle in my book, investigators were able to make out some names, phone numbers, and addresses written inside of the book. Okay, that's a big breakthrough. Any any good leads there? Well, not really, actually. We are talking about a likely murder that took place about 10 years ago, at least. And so most of the people with numbers written next to them got, had gotten new numbers. Almost everyone whose addresses were written in the book had moved by then. And so all of their efforts to try and find someone who could identify their dough went unsuccessful. So the next place they decide must have had some answers is the steel drum itself. There is a set of coded numbers imprinted on the side of this massive steel drum, kind of like, I would imagine, maybe like a serial number of sorts. The numbers led investigators to a chemical company in Linden, New Jersey, and when they go there to try and find some answers, the company is incredibly helpful. The records that they give to police indicate that the drum was manufactured in 1965. When the company got a look at the greenish liquid from the drum, they identified it as a palogen green dye that was used to color the bases on plastic flowers and trees, and they identified the pellets found in the drum as a plastic that was used to make the plastic flowers and trees, too. Okay, well, that that has to be a really big breakthrough for investigators, like... Those things, the the goo and the pellets are what make the flowers, and there were also plastic flowers in there, right? Right, exactly. And so this is all starting to make a lot of sense to investigators, like it's making a lot of sense to you and I, Heather. It feels like they hit the jackpot, but they still need to know who exactly would have had access to not only the paint and pellets or even the steel drum, but also to our Jane Doe. Okay, but let, like, let's think about that for a second. Who would have access to those things? Like, it, it would have to be someone involved in that manufacturing process, right? Yeah, you would think, yeah, someone who has access to to the factory, right, that we're talking about here. But then again, someone who, you know, we're talking about a factory in New Jersey. And so someone who, again, lived on Long Island, you know, like, who, you know, had access to that home, right? Like, that, that can't be a whole lot of people. Yeah, like... Who who owned the home before the guy that found the barrel? Well, you know, to answer that question, Heather, they feel the most logical explanation must have been someone who also had access to the home in Jericho, right? So they go through property records and go back to find the previous owners of the home to ask them some questions. And they find that there have been five owners of that home, including Ronald Cohen and the new owners. So Ronald already told investigators that the drum had been in the crawlspace of the home for 
the nine years that he had lived there. And the two previous owners before Ronald, when investigators had found them, tell them the exact same thing, that the mysterious drum had been down there ever since they moved in, and that they didn't think anything of it, and that it never even occurred to them to open the container since there were chemical labels on the side of it. It just seemed too dangerous to mess with it themselves. Okay, this these homeowners are getting really annoying. Like, um, so <laughs> it was found in 1999, and we have found there's five homeowners, the one who just mm-hmm. left, and the two before that who also didn't touch it. So how long has this poor woman and her unborn child been rotting and mummifying in this goo in this basement because no one thought to like call police or whoever to have it removed yeah i don't really (laughs) understand the excuse of like oh well it had like dangerous chemical like symbols on the side so i didn't want to touch it um well like maybe like if you're too afraid to touch it definitely shouldn't be like in the basement of your home yeah um just a thought like maybe call like a hazmat crew and like you know make sure that that you know at least like this fifth dude like had the sense to be like yeah that needs to go before i move in like i'm not doing that like you know otherwise like it probably would still be there this to this day like that's insane like it just it took like a turn of the millennia for someone to have the sense to be like, no, I'm not living with that in my home. Okay. So, but with all of, all of that into account, that leaves us with one person, right? The original Mm -hmm. homeowner. Right. And so that led police all the way back to the people who owned the home in the 1960s from 1963, when the home was built to October, 1972, to be exact. The person whose name was on the deed was a man named Howard Elkins. But when he sold the home in 1972, he moved to Boca Raton, Florida to retire. So he wasn't super accessible for questioning at the time. Okay. I get that it's 1999 and like we don't have like zoom and whatever to to talk but not super accessible and like this is a Mm -hmm. what a 40 year old murder case now at this point um practically yeah i what i i guess what i meant by that is just like like the other the everyone else who like owned the home at some point was like relatively in the area and like it's not like easy for like police to be able to just like like zip on down to like wherever to like you know question somebody like just because they owned a home you know like i yeah. like i like like that it takes a lot of funding too that like you know police departments just simply don't have so yeah silly jurisdictions uh yeah right <laughs> silly laws laws uh, holding us back <laughs> um okay so but besides that this was in the the 60s and he lived there for nearly 12 years so like did were they able to use that time frame at least to find any other details about who this woman could be um Kinda, you know, luckily, you know, there are some people who lived in the neighborhood at the time who are still around and are more than willing to answer local investigators' questions. They said that they were a nice family, a couple of kids, hardworking, no problems at all. And when investigators say, oh, well, like, what did Howard do for a living? They said that he was part owner of Melrose Plastics Company out of Manhattan, which you guessed it, specializes in creating plastic flowers and trees. Howard, you're looking very guilty right now. Okay, too many clues are adding up. Like, I know oh, yeah. I know that he's all the way down in Florida, and it's been 
decades, but like they have to talk to Howard, right? They find him. Please tell me they find him and talk to him. Oh, right. Well, obviously, you know, this was like simply too much of a clue to ignore. I mean, I think all the alarm bells are going off to investigators at this point. So local police in Nassau County, New York, decide that they are going to need to fly down to Florida and pay Howard Elkins a visit. Police said that all of the color in Howard Elkins' face was gone as soon as he opened the door for Nassau County police detectives. But reluctantly, he allowed them into his Florida home and agreed to answer their questions. But when the investigators start to reveal why they are there, Howard claims to know nothing about what they're bringing up. When they ask about the barrel in the basement of his former home, Howard says that he had no idea what they were talking about. He said that he never had any barrels like the ones that they were talking about, never used the dye or the chemicals that investigators traced back to the company he used to own, and didn't know how the drum may have ended up in his crawl space. But investigators at this point knew that Howard was lying through his teeth, because at this point they were able to limit the time frame that this woman likely died between 1965 when the barrel was manufactured and October 1972 when the homeowner who bought the home from Howard said that they first noticed the barrel in the basement. And Howard was the only person to have owned the home during that time period. After questioning Howard for several hours, he eventually makes a pretty bold admission. He says that around the time that they were talking about, he had had an affair with a woman, but couldn't even remember her name, couldn't just describe her and had no idea what had happened to her. I mean, this was, you know, indeed 30 years earlier. Howard. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not, um, I don't, I'm not one to like be very well versed in affairs, but I feel like if you had one that you're going to admit to to police, even if it was 30 years ago, you would probably remember a little bit more about that woman. Yeah. I mean, at least be able to describe her, right? I mean, like, sure, like, don't remember her name, like, you're a piece of crap, but, like, like, can, like, you can at least say, like, yeah, she had, like, like, you know, brown hair, like, for the love of God, like, something, like, I don't know, it was just, like, he was like, yeah, like, so, like, some woman, like, okay. Yeah, you don't remember, like, was she, was she a white woman, a Hispanic woman, a black right. woman? You don't, right. like, anything? Right. Did she have all of her right. legs? Like, Come on, Howard. Not buying it. You know, again, like, I've never, you know, been involved in an affair, like, never had an affair. But, like, I do feel pretty strongly saying that if you have an affair with someone, no matter how brief or, you know, how long ago it was, you at least, you you would remember that person. Like, you, it was, the person was enough to take you away from their, from your marriage. And yet, like, 30 years later, like, you just don't know who the heck she is. Like, give me a fucking break. Yeah. Howard. Yeah. Howard. We... We don't believe you, Howard. There and uh, we don't I'm sorry. You. The chemical. How did you make your plastic flowers then? Chemi- like right. What? Okay, Howard, you're lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, and, and like too, I do have to say, like you know, this is great police work on their part because my understanding is that they were just like playing dumb the whole time and just like like just letting him go, even though they knew 
like that everything he was saying was a, was a total freaking lie. Um, you know, because he was talking about like how like like he, like they knew at this point that they that they tied the the like the ink and the or the the dye and the um and the pellets back to like the company he used to own. Um, but like they like he they didn't let on that they knew that like to him at all. And so as far as he knew, like he was getting away with murder literally. Um, and like like in the back of their heads, like they're just like nope, like we know what you're saying is not true not true not true not true not true but we're just gonna like let you keep talking <laughs> they like legally blonded him they're like uh-huh mm-hmm. uh-huh right <laughs> oh big time yeah no big time you know again at this point the alleged coincidences that point to howard knowing more than he was letting on were mounting the company the time frame and now this mysterious affair but suddenly howard gets a call from his wife who says that she was going to be home soon and when he hangs up howard tells the investigators that they needed to go before his wife gets home because he wanted to talk to her about their visit privately before they go though the investigators ask if he would consider sent to supplying a swab of his DNA so that they could compare it to the fetus that was found inside of this woman. Howard refuses and tells them to leave, and the investigators say that they are going to come back with a warrant for a sample of his blood. I mean, like, I, I know that that's the legal process that, you know, he refused. They have to get a warrant, but he's like, come back with a warrant! Okay, that's not right. That's not helping your case at all, Howard. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, again, because if you really are like, yeah, like I don't know, like sure, just like take, like stick a you know cotton swab in my mouth. Like if 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 you really know you didn't do anything wrong, you know. But I don't know. Again, I have to imagine at this point, like he is just like he knows that like they're circling in. He knows what they know, you know. Yeah, I am curious. Um, did so they've been playing dumb about what they do and don't mm-hmm. know. Do they tell him specifically that the DNA is for a fetus that could potentially be his? So I, so from what I've read and, and watched about this case, I think it like they were playing dumb and until the very end when they were just like, yeah, like you know, like we we know, like we like like we know that you are involved in this somehow. Like we need a sample of your blood. Like we need we need we need some DNA. That that's kind of how I took this whole thing. Is that eventually they were just like, like we know you're lying. Like we 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 were like we're, we're we know that we're going to be able to get this warrant you know that that's my understanding okay so so please tell me they come back the next day with a warrant well not exactly heather Ugh. um you know the next day as investigators are getting ready to head back to new york they get a call from local police in boca raton the police tell the investigators that howard was found dead in his car in his neighbor's garage by his son. Howard had a shotgun between his leg and had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Howard. Sir, I just, what? Did he even have, like, no, suicide is not funny in, in any means for any situation. So it's, that is not, that is very damning as well that, he knew they were coming back. Did he even get a chance to talk to his wife? Like, this poor woman, does she know anything? So, from what I've read, uh, yes, he did get a chance to talk to her. Um, and that, he, and he kind of told her, like, why police were there, you know, and, you know, maybe, uh, like, why the, why the affair, you know, about this affair that he had, you know, kept, you know, a secret, allegedly, for all this time. Um, you know, a child, you know, like, I think that this is all kind of, you know, 
revolving, I suppose. And I think he kind of, like, my understanding is he kind of came clean. You know, I'm not totally clear on whether or not he came clean on the murder. Um, you know, but that's, that's kind of, that's, that's kind of where, how I think that conversation went. I don't know how she reacted if that kind of pushed him to do this um or if if the you know just the simple you know idea of you know him possibly going to jail for the rest of his life if that's what made him do this but yeah this uh this is just heart like a heartbreaking case overall like this this woman who hasn't been identified still at this point right. and, and this unborn child. And now this man has taken his own life as investigators narrow in on him as a right. lead suspect. And really, I don't see anyone else who could be right. one. Like I, I, so where does the case go from here? Is there any kind of resolution? Oh, there definitely is. We're not going to leave you hanging, Heather, like that. But, you know, investigators took the opportunity of Howard's frustrating death to collect a sample of his blood to test it against the baby inside of the drum. The DNA sample from the baby, though, was challenging to work with. Sitting and decomposing in the drum for likely about 30 years had degraded his DNA badly. And again, we're not really talking about, like, super advanced DNA technology at this point. But when the tests came back, the results were clear as day. The analysis produced a result that could not exclude Howard as a father with a probability of 99.93%. So, like, basically 100. Oh, my gosh. This, oh. And then I can't, I can't imagine, like, he's gone. So, obviously, like, even if I'm not saying he's definitely the one who did it, but, like, his reaction is highly suspicious. Yeah. But now his wife is left alone and mm-hmm. like did she know about the affair? Again, like if 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 we're going down the rabbit hole of like what we're kind of all assuming happened here, right? That like Howard did, did actually kill this woman and then, you know, killed himself to, you know, avoid prosecution. Um, not only is that like really frustrating in the sense of like he's not going to face justice for this woman, but then also too, like you think about like what he did to his family and like again i hate to even like like going down this this hole because like it feels very like like blamey in terms of like suicide victim and all that jazz but like if we if we go again if we're sticking to the to the um you know howard is actually the is actually guilty for all of this it just feels weird that like that this is how you're going to like pass this buck onto the rest of your family um that you that you have to let your son find you dead and you're just leaving your wife with this like huge thing that you just possibly just dumped on her it's just it's just a lot and it's kind of unfortunate and feels icky to me so so this this is obviously a very hard time for howard's family like Mm -hmm. that's a lot of information to receive and also a huge loss of a prominent member of their family but for the case, does this does this get us anywhere, or is this just the end of it? Um, no, definitely not the end of it, Heather. Um, this confirmed what police had suspected ever since they first got wind about Howard that he somehow had something to do with the death of our Jane Doe. But it didn't answer the biggest question of them all: Who was the woman in the barrel? Welcome to the Crime Vineyard. I'm Michelle. And I'm Candy. And this is Sips of Crime. 
Grab a glass. Grab a friend. And let's dive in to some of the most notorious tales of murder, mystery, betrayal, and a few laughs along the way. You can find us at sipsofcrime.com and wherever you get your podcasts every other Monday. Back to you, Liam. Stay alive. All right, Heather, how are you enjoying your Merlot? It's it's pretty good. It's um I know some wines as you drink them, more flavors will come out. This has stayed pretty consistent oh, yeah. for me. So like I don't feel like one mm. one flavor's coming out more than another. This is this is staying smooth and uh, same level of dry. Yeah, it is very smooth. I'm glad you said that because I just noticed that too. Um, it's not very tanniny at all. Um, but also, yeah, I'm not like kind of what you said. Like, I'm not really noticing a whole lot of new stuff in here at all. Like, it still feels very bold. It still feels feels very mouth forward for sure. Um, and I'm still getting a lot of fruit flavors. Have not really picked up on the cedar still though. So like that, I'm still waiting to come out. Yeah, I just it is good, and I would recommend it. I have like a third left. Um, yeah. Uh, of the bottle. A third? A th- oh, damn. Um, okay. Yeah. I have like a third of the bottle left. Um, I'm, like, I'm definitely. My first glass. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just poured my second glass. So, uh, I haven't taken, I haven't drank like that much of the second glass. It's pretty much full. So, um, but I, I'm feeling it, but not like, I'm not like without my senses. I'm still, still here. Um, I do, I do feel this, this is like a dinner wine though. I would like it paired with a, a food oh, yeah. or something. Um, the website does say that the, that the, um, that it pairs well with like dark meats kind of thing. So like, or red meats, um, you know, burgers, steaks, that kind of stuff. And I definitely 1000% see that for this wine for sure. Oh yeah. This, this, this isn't like a summer sipping on the porch type of wine. Like, oh no, 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 no. Uh, but other than that, really enjoying it. Good pick, Liam. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks. You know, I, you know, I love my little devil. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, that's why I wanted that, um, that for me, um, that, and I, oh, like, again, like, go look at, like, go look at our Instagram and go, like, look at the label on this, um, because it is, like, re- like, it, it stands out for sure. Um, so I'm glad we were able to pick this one out. And by we, I mean me. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it was all you. I just went to Publix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so are you, let's, you know, speaking of, like, really dark, you know, things, really dark case we're talking about. So let's just like slide right back into this um, because the back half of this case is very satisfying, uh, frustrating, but satisfying all at the same time. So are you ready for this? I'm so ready. Okay. So once the news broke that Howard Elkins was not only dead, but the suspect in the murder of the woman in the barrel, word spread around Jericho, New York quickly. Shortly after Howard was found dead in his car, police get an anonymous call that once again reinforced what they already suspected about their investigation. The caller says that he knew Howard and used to work with him at the Melrose Plastics Company. He said that Howard was having an affair with a Hispanic woman who worked for him at the time at the Plastics Company. At one point, the woman, who did match the Jane Doe's description, showed up at the Plastics Company with a child, and the rumor around the company was that the child was Howard's. Bless this former employee. I just... I don't like... You hear police say pretty frequently that um people not coming forward is a lot of what holds them back in cases so oh yeah big time big kudos to this one person who like i know that it's very much after the fact but no one knew this woman's body was 
decomposing for 40 years. Yeah. And I also have to say, too, like, the, like the quick, like, timeline that we're talking about, too. Um, like, like she, like, I don't know exactly how much time has passed since they, like, found the, found the body. Um, and when, you know, Howard died. Um, but it wasn't all that long. And so I don't really think that news had, like, really broken about, you know, or really had time to break about their discovery. Um, and so I, but then I would imagine that once you see, like, your friend or, like, somebody who you know, like, their name in the newspaper because they, you know, died and, like, are a suspect in a murder i'm sure that spreads a lot quicker um you know than like unknown you know woman found in a barrel so yeah because like i mean let's think about it. it's 1999 or night or, or early 2000 like it's somewhere in that time frame so like news isn't being dispersed on facebook and twitter that's not how it's happening right. so people are reading articles and once you see this man's name popping up, you're probably calling people and that's spreading the word a lot right. faster. Right. Yeah. Especially on Long Island. Like that's where like, you know, news travels quick on the <laughs> island, you know? And so, but by this point, scientists had had great luck deciphering the writings on the papers and the address book. Actually, two names stood out. The first being a familiar one. It was Howard Elkins and his phone number and a Manhattan address. Definitive proof that how Howard, at the very least, knew this woman, another connection to the woman who was found dead in the basement of his former home, and a drum that was tied back to a company he used to run, and possibly more evidence that she was indeed the woman he had had an affair with 30 years earlier. Okay, so a a little more confirmation, but um, again... um, Not proof. yeah, Yeah, not evidence, and... Uh, this probably isn't a good phrase to use here, but it feels like we're beating a dead horse. Howard's gone. Like, we can't can't prove anything yeah. else, like, with his connection. Yeah. But there's a second name, right? Yeah, there is. Um, But, like, also, too, like, you know, I just have to point, it's like, pause here, only because I feel like, you know, a lot of times, you know, the cases that we talk about in this podcast um, are typically, like, the more frustrating ones, right? Um, And so, oftentimes, those frustrating cases typically revolve around, you know, investigations and police officers who just don't, like, thir- like you know, investigate things thor- thoroughly enough. And in this case, I mean, these officers you know, are not, you know, letting this all go, right? I mean, like, a lot of officers would probably, you know, like, paint this guy as a suspect when he died, you know, just be like, yep, like, that's it, and just move on. Um, And that's what happens a lot of times in these cases when it's like, when it's like there's the guy who has even more evidence against him just, you know, skates on by because they already had, like, their laser set on this dude and, you know, ignored everything else that, like, could have pointed them in a completely different direction. And so I have to give them a huge shout-out kudos to say, you know, these guys are are continuing or are, are, are proving it or, you know, going out there and, and getting enough evidence to say, yep, for sure, Howard Elkins was our dude. It's unfortunate we can't prosecute him, but he was our guy, period. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's, very admirable from from the stance yeah. of um also from the fact that she may have been an immigrant um right like she may have not had family here or really anyone who knew she was missing and yeah. there's they're still pursuing every lead they can as far as we can tell and you know this is about two decades ago so technology is not where it is now with 
with investigations. So this took time. This took a lot of patience. And uh, it seems like there's been some creative investigative work here, too. Yeah, big time. Yeah. And let's let's go there, too, for a second, because I feel like we kind of like, like, you know, slid right by this, too. Um, you know, because first of all, it would have been so easy, right? Because and I feel like this happens all the time in cases that we talk about here, where it's like, you know, a marginalized victim, right? And it's just someone who we're just like, like last week, we were talking about Robert Picton and in the and the you know prostitutes that that he was accused of killing. And it's like those people were, you know, just totally glanced over, like totally like all these officers just like look the other way for decades. Um, And so, you know, that to me sticks out at that point. And like, it's, you know, it's possible that that, you know, possibly played into the fact that she, you know, was in there for 30 plus years. Um, but then there's also, you know, to, to, you know, to, again, give them a whole bunch of credit here. Like, I don't like, and again, we could have talked about this a long time ago. Like the fact that, that, you know, there was not, there was nobody out there looking for this woman and her unborn child who went missing. Right. And so like, I'm wondering, like, like, like it just would have been so easy for them to just let it go because there was clearly nobody interested in looking for this woman and nobody who cared about her, at least in the United States to like really be pressing this issue. Right. And so, so it would have been really easy for them to just be like, you know what? Like, yep. It was Howard. Cool. Okay. Case closed. That's another, you know, point in our book. So cheers to this investigative team. They're, they're doing mm-hmm. a really great job with all the circumstances that they've been given. And they're right. Not just pinpointing it on the dead guy. Like, yeah. So, so what's next? Yeah. Well, yeah. And so another name, you know, stood out to them too. Like we were talking about the second name in the book. It was the name of a person that they hadn't spoken to just yet. Kathy Andrade. Miraculously, Kathy was still living in the same apartment and had the same phone number as when the woman had written it down back in the 60s. And when police call her to tell her what they were looking into, Kathy was immediately brought to tears and immediately knew who they were talking about. Her name was Reina Angelica Marikin, an immigrant from El Salvador. Kathy had told police that Reina had moved to America in 1966 to start her life over. She lived in a Catholic home for single women while attending classes at the high school of fashion industries. When she wasn't studying, though, she was working at Melrose Plastics Company as a line worker and taking English classes, too. That's how Kathy said that she knew Raina. She was a student in the English class that Kathy had been teaching. And the two of them became really close friends, and Kathy told Forensic Files that she was one of the more lovely people that she had met in her life. She was always talking about home and her family and how proud she was that she was making it in New York, of all places, on her own. She had a dream of one day becoming a full American citizen. But one day, when Raina was 28 years old, Raina told Kathy, that she had gotten pregnant, but never told her who the baby's father was. She did tell Kathy, though, that he was married and had three other children. Shortly after that, Raina moved to an apartment in New Jersey, and Raina told Kathy that the baby's father helped her pay for it, but again, never told her who this mysterious man was. 
Raina did tell Kathy that she loved him and that he loved her back and that he was going to one day leave his wife and marry her once the timing was right. But as time went on and she got closer and closer to her due date, Raina started to doubt whether that was actually true. So Kathy told police that Raina called his house absolutely furious, but his wife picked up and Raina said his wife knew nothing about her. So even more furious, she told this man's wife who she was and that she was expecting a baby with her husband. His wife hung up and just a few minutes later, the man called Raina back absolutely fuming and said that he was going to kill her and Raina knew that he was being serious. So, terrified, Raina called Kathy and told her what had just happened. So, Kathy went over to Raina's apartment, but when she got there, the door was unlocked and there was no sign of Raina anywhere. But there was still warm food on the stove and her belongings, including her coat, were all still inside of the apartment. Kathy said that she waited for three hours before she decided to go to police to report her missing. Kathy told police that she was a friend of Raina's and that she was about to have a baby like any day now. But she said that police told her that since she didn't know the identity of Raina's baby's father, there wasn't much that she could do. That is um, infuriating and heartbreaking that I can't believe that there's nothing else that could have been done. They knew who the potential victim was. Like, right. I, yeah. And like, you know where like this crime possibly could have been committed, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that's I just, uh, I don't even know what to say to that because I feel like, I yes, I know there are limitations of, like, you can't report a person missing. Like, it, like you, you have to have certain information. And, mm-hmm. but if, if you go, if someone calls you and says, I'm about to be, mur-, like, this person said they were going to kill me and I think they right. actually are. And then they disappear and there's evidence that they should have still been in their home. I feel like that's worth looking into, even without that yeah. one piece of information. Yeah, and I don't, and I never understand like why like this happens so freaking often, where like somebody will call and report someone missing, and like officers will refuse to take a report. Like I don't get it. Like I don't understand. Like what what does it hurt? literally anybody to just write it down on a piece of paper. Like, even if you forget about it for forever, like, just take the damn report. Like, who cares if, if you, if, you know, all of this stuff, like, if if she doesn't know the, the name of the baby's father, like, who the fuck cares? Like, just write it down and just, like, like, at least it's in a record somewhere. Like, I don't... Ugh. God, I just, it, that, like, I never understood that. And also, I have to say this, I, it, like, it just, it, you know, I, I can't imagine that if she was a white woman that this, you know, um, that this, you know, wouldn't have, you know, been much more productive. But that's probably a different conversation, different podcast. Yeah, like, I just, like, I know, I know, again, it's not, it's not the current times. So, like. Mm-hmm. Policing has definitely evolved over the past, like just within the past yeah. few years alone, um, majorly. But I just don't understand how you don't take a report on that of, of some kind. Write it down, put it on a post-it note. For the love of God. Okay, so right. s- okay, so what does that what does that mean for our case for Ra- for Reina? 
Like, well, that is pretty much where things stood for a long time. Kathy felt as though she did everything she could as a friend to bring attention to Raina's mysterious disappearance. So that's where she left things for 30 years until she finally got a phone call from Nassau County Police who told her that they finally believe that they know Raina's baby's father and that he was likely responsible for murdering her. That has to be a very unexpected phone call like what 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 else do they tell her there has to be more well you know police be- tell her that they believe that howard lured reyna to the factory during a late night in 1969 after she called his wife and told her that she had been having an affair with howard when she got there he beat her to death and put her lifeless pregnant body into a steel drum from work and weighed it down with pellets possibly with the intention of dumping the drum and her body along with it into the ocean but when she was in the barrel he likely realized that he had miscalculated its weight and realized it would be far too heavy for him to take it on the boat so he put it in the basement of his suburban long island home where it stayed as he tried tried to live a normal, happy life with his wife and kids, and eventually for four more homeowners. That's... I don't know how someone can kill someone and then go about their lives, let alone with their bodies living under their house. And also, how did... If it was too heavy to get onto a boat to dump into the ocean, how did he get it all the way into his home and into the crawlspace without anyone (laughs) noticing? Yeah, that's kind of my, like, big question throughout this whole entire process, right? Like, I don't understand any of this like like so because like everyone keeps saying that this thing is too heavy and yet it somehow like keeps traveling like from freaking new jersey or like manhattan like to long island to the the crawl space to like the the curb on the home from ronald cohen's perspective like i it's confusing as heck but if if that's where we're at, I guess that's where we're at. Yeah, so, so I mean, the only, like, my only, like, logical, semi-logical explanation is that, like, maybe, like, he put the drum in, like, the, like a bed of a truck kind of thing and then put her in it that way and then drove it and then, like, dragged it or rolled it to the crawl space. I don't know. God, that's... I'm just speculating. Yeah, that's... I just don't know how you, like... I know it's not a real story, but like the Telltale Heart, she's like literally right there under your home as you're trying to go about your normal life. Like, how can someone do that? That is what I don't understand about this case more than literally anything else. I don't understand how you live in that home for more than a day without that absolutely, like, imploding inside of your brain, right? Like, that, that takes, like, one sick fuck, frankly, to be able to just, like, go about your life, like, knowing that the woman that you murdered is, like, literally right underneath the feet of your, you know, family. Like, ugh. Yeah, but still, Howard was never convicted or proven guilty of this, and he's right. gone, but there's still a victim and a baby. Is there... Right. Any justice for them in this? Well, you know, to me, Heather, this story felt like it was really missing some resolve. Like, it sounds like it's missing for you, too. Like, how could a young, hopeful woman just beginning a new life in this bright, brave new country just be gone and forgotten about for three decades and the person most likely responsible for killing her, you know, have taken the easy way out instead of facing the consequences of his actions? Well, there is a bit of bits of a resolution here, but it takes someone traveling more than 2,000 miles away to bring that resolve to light.
A reporter from the media outlet Newsday, who had been following the story of the woman in the barrel, decided that he was going to find that ending to this story for himself. Once the woman's name and face were finally brought to light, he travels to El Salvador on a mission to find the woman's family and he dies. He finds Reina's 95-year-old mother and broke the news to her about how her daughter's life had been ended. The reporter wrote that she nearly fainted when he showed her the picture of her daughter's body and told her that she had died 30 years ago. Her mother tells the reporter that she had decided to move to America because she had, kind of ironically, found out that her husband had another lover who had also just gotten pregnant, and she decided that she was going to start all over again. Once settled in New York, she would write letters to family members in El Salvador, updating them on how her new life was going and telling them how hopeful she had been feeling and that she was finally going to be someone someday. But one day in 1969, the letters just stopped, and that really started to worry Rena's family the longer she had gone without writing and updating them on her new life. So her family decided to report her missing in El Salvador, and even put ads in local newspapers to try and spread awareness about her daughter, but she had gone missing in New York, again 2,000 miles away, and I'm sure you can imagine that didn't help all that much, but, you know, what else were they supposed to do? Yeah, like, I, I can't... What do you do if your loved one immigrant immigrates to another country and then they're missing how do you what else can you do other than report them missing in your country like yeah yeah like i feel like they probably i don't know yeah it's it's a complicated that's really complicated right because like like yeah i don't know i don't know heather i don't really know like what like like how do you go about that and like also maybe they're not like 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 in this you know time like before social media and all this jazz right like how do you even know if they're really missing right like maybe they just decided to stop writing like maybe they just got so caught up with their own lives right i mean 30 years later like i would imagine that they probably put two and two together at that point but like you know, in the first initial months, like, like, what do you even think? I don't know. I know. Cause it's, I mean, I, th- I feel like it's really hard for you and me to imagine. Cause right. even, even in our lifetimes, like texting came about when I was a teenager. So like, and social media around the same time, but before that it was landlines and letters and you had to wait for right. these things like it that wasn't uncommon and long distance codes yeah 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 um but so did in after the letters stopped coming did the mom get any any kind of idea might what might have happened well you know over the next 30 years reina's mother told the reporter for newsday that she had had periodic dreams about her daughter and as she had come to terms with the likelihood that reina was probably dead those dreams turned into nightmares that reina was stuck in a barrel somewhere screaming for her mother's help And those dreams continued until the reporter showed up to her home to tell her that those dreams were far more realistic than she ever would have liked to believe was true. I, oh my gosh, like, so I, I believe in, in spiritual communication like that, that, you know, Mm -hmm. that that is a possibility, but how, as a mother, I can't imagine the excruciating pain that must come with having this nightmare that your daughter 
or child, whatever gender is, is struggling and is crying out for your help, even from a, like the other side and you can't right. do anything about it. And you, and you think it's just a nightmare because you don't know where they went. And then to yeah. find out that that's actually what happened to your child. Like that's yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. And, and like, I also have to believe that there's like a little bit of like a cultural thing there too of like, like it's possible that she believed like, like again, like reaching super far here, but like if, if she did believe that like what these dreams were reality, if these dreams were true, like still, like what do you even do with that information? Right? Like you have no idea truly like what other world, you know, your daughter's living in. All you know is that she may or may not being a barrel based on these dreams. So, yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I just like, can you imagine going to to a cop and being like, "Look, I had a dream." Mm-hmm. There. Well, but also too, like I go back to like Teresita Bassa, right? I mean, they like pursued like a whole avenue of investigation based off of a freaking premonition, like that, like like this woman's body was possessed. You know, and so, like, and they found a suspect, like, they found, like, they arrested somebody um, based off of the information that they found because this woman came forward and said that, that she was possessed by their victim. And so, like, I don't know. I mean, I like, like, investigators always surprise me in terms of, like, 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 what, like, where they'll get the information from. And so, like, I have to imagine, like, a 30-year-old case they're probably they probably would have been a little desperate they probably would have listened to her but from her perspective like like how do you even get in touch with 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 officers 2000 miles away you know in a different country in a world where they don't speak your language and like websites are based on, like you're on like dial up modem like i feel like the right. internet probably yeah. wasn't common in el, Sal- el salvador at this point either probably um, not a whole lot yeah like so definitely a lot of barriers there so Okay, so we we know who she is and who the father is and what likely happened to her. But like so what happens? Does she does she get laid to rest or anything? Is there peace for this family? Well, you know, fortunately, Heather, they, you know, are now able to at least definitively know what had happened to Reina. And they were able to bring her and her unborn child back to El Salvador to be buried. Although I can't imagine, you know, that you know, made it any easier for them. They never truly got to say goodbye. Their 30-year-old mystery had some kind of resolved, but not really in a good way. And the man who most likely was responsible for her death refused to face justice for what he had done. But at least they were able to know that Reina had finally had her name back and she was finally at home. Yeah, that that has to have, I mean, for the family of her, for Reina, that at least gives them the chance to put her to rest with their cultural traditions. And right. So there's at least that, but then there's this whole grandchild for this woman who's now 95 that she never got a chance to know who never had a chance to live. Um, they weren't even born. Right. And I can't, I can't imagine the, the grief that she's feeling this late in her life and the rest of the family. But then you also have, as you mentioned, Howard, who likely did this and is no longer here to face any consequences, but his family and his children are still around. Is there, is that, 
Is that it? Is that where we are now? Like, is that case closed? Like, legally, the case is closed? Um, yeah, pretty much, Heather. I mean, that's kind of where we're where we're at. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly <laughs> where we're at. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, they bring her home, they lay her to rest. Um, you know, the Howard's family, like, deals with that however they choose to, I suppose. And... You know, everyone just tries to move on, I suppose, but it just doesn't sit right with me. I can't imagine that anyone is, you know, walking away from this who's tied to Howard or Reyna, you know, feeling okay, right? Like, no one wins here. Like, absolutely no one wins here. Yeah, I, this is a really hard case because I feel like a, a lot of times with true crime and even just as working as a journalist in news, over time you build up this distance um from these mm-hmm. stories of because you kind of have to to protect your own like emotional needs and sanity right. um because with some of the things that we read and we'll see and stuff um mm-hmm. so it's easy to become detached and have theories and stuff but there's really people and hurt at the center of all this and right. nobody nobody gets a solid win out of this, if you will, even the investigators in this, like they did everything they could like. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like there's like a certain level of like, we all like, can kind of like see ourselves in Reina in like a certain way too. Cause like she seemed like such like a hopeful person, right? Like, you know, starting her life over, like feels like everything's kind of like going in that direction of like that she finally wanted it to. And, really truly was like in the wrong place at the wrong time right like like thought that everything was like thought that she was doing everything right um and like you know just kind of landed in this like weird spot you know got involved with the wrong dude who was more interested in preserving his life than than not being a murderer right so it just it's really uh, yeah it's an, it's a really unfortunate case and i just feel like like a lot again like a lot of us can probably relate to reina and that like they like like she was you know pursuing this whole life and had that like really just the stolen from her so well i'm glad that she has a name and she's been laid to rest and right that the fact that this child who may have never had a chance to live, but the fact that they existed is known now. So I feel like that gives them some power as well. So, I mean, um, I guess here's to Reyna and her child and her family that they find peace (laughs) moving forward. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, this was like 25 ish years ago. So, I would hope they would by now, Um, you know, and I, and I hope, and if they haven't, then I hope they do for sure. So, um, well, you know, in the meantime, Heather, um, that is all that we have for you this week. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for having me. It's, this is like my first time ever on a podcast. Like yours is the only podcast I listen to. Um, and so this, um, I know, (laughs) um, I just love you so much. Uh, this this has been um, very interesting. I don't want to say fun just because of like what the topic is, but I right. I really enjoy the chance to talk with you about this and learn about this case and everything that went into yeah. it because there are definitely some unique um, investigative techniques to to get to the bottom of this. Oh yeah. So 
Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And yeah, and yeah, big time. I never heard about this like video, you know, whatever the heck they were talking about, the infrared stuff, you know, to try to get like this, um, this like book to be legible. I thought that like that's fascinating. And like if you haven't watched the Forensic Files episode on this, go watch that because they show it, you know, pretty well. Like it's obviously like recreated, but like it's they show it, you know, pretty well in terms of like how this process is. So go watch that. Um, and yeah, the, the, the forensics are, is fascinating. And I also do have to say, because yes, Heather, this is your first time on this podcast for sure. Um, but it is not the first time that you've ever been mentioned on this podcast. Um, because if you go all the way back, um, to the Sneha Phillips episode, I actually did mention Heather, um, because, um, she wanted us to talk about the wine at the end and re and circle back and talk about how much wine we have left in the bottle. Um, and so you didn't mention it already. I am curious to see what you've got left in, in, in the um, tank here. So I- I'm still at about a third, but have definitely okay. like made a dent made a in dent. that second glass of cool. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm about halfway through the bottle, um, and I am like, oh, like I, I just I am on my second glass here, and I have like like a sip or two left. So okay, so you may have actually like surpassed me at this point <laughs> i'm usually listen i'm usually the drunkest one on the podcast so like it's fine <laughs> well thank you so much again for coming on heather and you know tell everyone where they can find you and your work online um so pretty much right now it's just twitter you can find me at heather produces yeah so that's that's about it um i've been kind of slacking on it lately but i do post like breaking news stories and reshare stuff so. and funny memes and stuff so yeah. she, she's got she's got some good memes uh, well, <laughs> thank you again so much for coming on, Heather. And thank you all so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories, too. And if you are just loving this podcast and are just wondering how you can tell everyone and anyone about it, the best way to help others discover this podcast is by leaving us a five-star rating and a review wherever you are listening right now. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're wondering what we have in store for you next week here's a quick sneak peek hello everybody it's your host liam collins and i'm jeremiah Beatty. next week i'm stepping into the crime vineyard to talk about a mysterious death that happened at a chicago hotel party what really happened to kanika jenkins we will tell you all about it but you'll have to wait until next wine wednesday for another episode of crime over wine Proud member of the Podnuga Network.